Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Okay, we're finally live. Can everyone hear me? Just yep. let me just get a. You. Okay, you guys can hear me. Chat, can you hear me? Everyone rolling in now. It's getting out of hand. Now there are three of them. Okay, so what I was saying before it was cut off in the last stream, which I'm going to delete. Uh, we're my paraphrase. We're joined by uh, the glorious Alan Dean Foster, who has written many books, and uh, we gave a big introduction to him yesterday as well. But um, essentially, he's written A New Hope. He's written Splinter: The Mind's Eye, The Force Awakens novel. Um, Approaching Storm, which is a prequel novel, and many, many more books. Um, once again, <laughs> hello, sir. How you doing? Thank you for your time. Uh, and I'm joined by Mark, and uh, we're going to make this interview happen. Now everyone's rolling in. We yeah. can hear you. Okay, so we're good. Cool. So what I was saying yeah, before... No, I didn't delete it. It's, the other one? No, it's still up for the next hour, and I'm just going to focus on our conversation right now, because I don't want to be derailed <laughs> all anymore. Right, all right. Because half the people are probably still there. He's going, what's going on? No, it's stuff? closed. <laughs> all right, all right. And they're like, where are they? Yeah. Okay, so what I was asking was, with The New Hope, when you were writing the novelization, um, the prologue with the wills uh, was something that I found interesting, and I always wanted to learn more about the wills. I feel like that's what maybe the se sequel trilogy would have been about with George. Um, I know there are many different rumors about that. Can you tell me about what you know about the wills from George from the beginning? Uh, that's what was in the script that I was given. Okay. Part of it, I expanded on it like I did everything else in the screenplay for the book. I always thought, and I never had a chance to ask George or anybody else about this, and it was never confirmed by any other source. I always thought the wills would be assuming there would be a sequel because no one remember no one thought at the time that there was any guarantee of any kind of a sequel yeah i always thought if the, if the wills were a real thing in the star wars universe uh, as small as it was at the time that they would be some ancient overseeing race that just uh, kept track of things they were historians in other words so they wouldn't interact directly with anything that was going on because 
their, uh, the job of their species was to record things as accurately as possible for future species. And uh, that, that was it as far as I was concerned with the wills. I thought it was a fascinating idea. Yeah. It never got explored. The other possibility, of course, would be that the wills would be something like what I just described, but that they would have interactions with what was going on in the Star Wars universe. And there was always this thought that they were not prime movers behind the scenes, but maybe just out of personal willish interest, yeah. they might tweak a little something here and there, and this person might get saved mysteriously, and this person might step off a cliff mysteriously and that they were kind of acting in the background in small ways. Because if you made them major actors in Star Wars, then the, the whole storyline would have taken a completely different thrust. But it would have been fun to see them kind of in the background a little bit. When I first encountered the character of Maz Kanata, yeah. I had this weird thought that maybe she's actually a will. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, a, that's a really interesting thought. Yeah, because I don't know who she is and she... I, I thought maybe she's a Yoda species or something. Maybe there's those ears are being pushed in by whatever she's wearing. But well, there were a lot of possibilities. It's it's nice to have some mysteries. You don't want everything spelled out. Right. I, I was asked another time in another interview which character would I like to explore more if I was writing additionally in the Star Wars universe, and the answer would be Maz Kanata because we don't know a whole lot about her. It's nice to have that little bit of mystery in the background there, and I would try to keep her that way too. So I never actually thought she was a will, but maybe she had some contact with the wills, or she was an intermediary with the wills, because you don't want everything you don't want everything spelled out. And if we learn who the wills are, what their exact purpose is, what they look like, then the mystery all goes away. And I think that takes some of the fun out of it. There are enough things in Star Wars uh, that are spelled out in various encyclopedias as well as the films yeah. to where we don't need everything spelled everyone's out. got so a backstory my, character backstory. yeah that was my take on the, that was my take on the wills so let, let's take this back to the beginning um can you can you share with us how you remember the first time that you heard the name george lucas that you met whether it was through uh, a phone call or whatever the first time you interacted with George Lucas? I had had a book come out called Ice Rigger, which did very well. And apparently, and I never had this confirmed anywhere, apparently someone connected or several someone's connected with Star Wars thought that these, the book was in the same spirit as the film that George was making. And on the basis of that, and the fact that I had already done some novelizations for uh, Ballantine Books Del Rey, thought I might be a good person to do the book version of this upcoming film. And my editor at the time, Judy Lynn Del Rey, called and discussed it with me and said, have you ever heard of a filmmaker named George Lucas? And I said, sure. He made a good science fiction film, THX 1138, which was an expansion of a graduate student film. And then he made, of course, American Graffiti. So that's how I knew the name George Lucas. And she said to me, well, uh, he's making a science fiction film called Star Wars. And I immediately went, oh boy, you know, it's a Flash Gordon takeoff or something, not knowing of George's interest in, in Flash Gordon at the time, uh, but it'll be pulp, but that's okay. And I said, sure, I'd be interested in doing the book. So I was sent to meet with uh, uh, Delray proposed my name as the prospective author of the, the book version. 
I was sent to meet with George's lawyer, Tom Pollack, over on Hollywood Boulevard, which we did, presumably to uh, size me up and ascertain the fact that I wasn't a secret axe murderer or something. And on the basis of that, I was asked to go out and meet with George at Industrial Light and Magic, which at that time was in a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, California, about 10 minutes from where I grew up. So I knew exactly where it was. I went over there one day, couldn't find a place to park because the entire parking lot was filled with uh, uh, large pieces of plywood uh, mounted on sawhorses, on top of which were all these little plastic building looking things. These were all the pieces for the Death Star trench run. And they were so big that they didn't have room inside the warehouse. So they put them out in the parking lot. This being Southern California, the weather was fine. So I walked in and uh, met with somebody and they said, well, tell George you're here. And I said, what should I do in the meantime? And she said, well, just wander around, do whatever you want. Just try not to touch anything, which I knew well enough not to do anyway. So I'm walking around Industrial Light and Magic. I did not have a camera, but would not have taken pictures anyway. No cell phone cameras back in those days. No cell phones back in those days. We have wind-up telephones. You remember those. And uh, wandered around and you know, looked at everything. And there was a whole wall filled, piled up to the top with uh, plastic model kits from World War II battleships and fighter jets, all of which were being cannibalized to make the models. And finally had this one guy call me over and say, you want to see something interesting? So I said, sure, wondering where George was. And he said, this is the first computer controlled camera in the history of motion pictures. And John Dykstra proceeded to explain Dykstra vision to me, none of which I was interested in at the time because I was young and stupid. And eventually George came out and you know we shook hands and he said, let me show you around a little bit. And here's the Death Star, which is this beach ball size thing. And here's an X-wing fighter. It was mounted on a, a gimbal in front of a green screen. The, one of the original models, of course. And we chatted for a bit. And I guess he decided I was uh, okay, because I ended up doing that and the first sequel book. It was a two book contract. And that's, that was my contact with uh, George Lucas at the very beginning. He, he was very nice. He struck me as a fan who was making a movie. Uh, and he probably struck me as a writer who at least was competent at doing this sort of work. And we hit it off very well. I didn't press him on questions. I didn't try to uh, make the, the interview last for two hours or something because having been around the motion picture business for a while, my uncle Howie Horowitz produced Batman on TV and 77 Sunset Strip and other shows. I had some inkling of what making a motion picture involves, never mind one with complicated special effects. And frankly, I was surprised he had any time to give uh, to, give to me at all. But it was nice, it was fun. Uh, uh, he struck me as uh, the least likely guy to be a major filmmaker as anybody could possibly imagine. He was just a nice guy making a movie. This is so cool. It's like taking me down memory lane. Um, Later on, if you want me to, want me to go I, Please, this. yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. starstruck yeah, we, with the we, stories. We, yeah, we wanna, we wanna go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for 
happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Go back and really explore the beginning, you know, and and how all of the original philosophy originated, which we've since deviated from, in my opinion, quite drastically. Very uh, but yeah. So, you know, um, did you guys have any of those moments where you sat down after you had written or read the script and talked about how you were thinking about expanding the narrative or stuff like that? Or, or did you have any work sessions? In one session involving Splinter the Mind's Eye, just members of two book contract. As soon as I finished the, uh, the adaptation of the film, I dove into developing a storyline for, for the proposed, speak, proposed sequel, came up with the title, Splinter the Mind's Eye, I sent it off uh, to George and his people, came back, said fine, and I went ahead and wrote the book. And the next time I saw George uh, was at a, a meeting uh, in a small rented building on the Universal lot in one of what they called the bungalows, which were buildings that probably dated to late World War II or post-World War II era. It was myself, Gary Kurtz, and Charlie Lippincott, who was in charge of advertising and promotion. The four of us sat down and had a session about Splinter the Mind's Eye. Now, the first thing we discussed was the adaptation of Star Wars. And I, George said, I read the book, it's fine. <laughs> Doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. But that, you know, that's how that finished up. And then it was time to discuss Splinter. And he knew how Star Wars was going to proceed and end. He was more concerned at that point about Splinter because it was entirely new material that I had come up with. Um, so we talked, there were certain things. Uh, he had already seen the manuscript for the book at that point. And he said, book's fine, but there are two things you need to take out, please. Uh, one, I don't remember, but it was very small. The other was the fact that Splinter originally opened for fans who remember the book with a very large space battle. It was the entire first chapter. This is what forces Luke and Leia, who are in the area, if you will, down on the planet Mimban. Yeah. And George said, you have to take that out, please, because it'd be expensive to film. And the whole point of Splinter was to write something which could, in a pinch, be filmed on a low budget, which is why Splinter is set on a fog-shrouded planet and often is underground. These are cheap sets. There's no CGI back in those days. So I developed the story with that always in mind, but the opening space battle, which doesn't really add anything enormous to the story. It's just a really nice space battle mm. uh, was gone. And essentially the, the book opens with chapter two. Uh, other than that, there were, there were no concerns or complaints. George had some suggestions. All of this is documented, by the way, in recordings that the prescient Charlie Lippincott made for all of these kinds of story sessions. And there's a lot of talk back in there, if you ever get a chance to read them or listen to them. Uh, George suggesting certain things, me diplomatically trying to suggest that maybe that's not a good idea. Gary Kurtz putting his opinion in. Gary and I tended to agree on a lot of the story elements. Uh, not only for Splinter, but whenever any idea of future Star Wars were discussed, we were pretty much in line. George liked to wander a little bit, not so much because he couldn't focus on the story, but he 
always had these other ideas that he wanted to incorporate. Uh, there's the story of him wanting to uh, have in Star Wars, of course, a big battle where you have Wookiees mounted on giant creatures attacking. Uh, could we fit that in Splinter? I delicately tried to say, no, it didn't really go with the storyline that had been developed. Uh, stuff, like, stuff like that, that at the time, of course, was simply story talk. Yeah. There was a notion that there was going to be a second Star Wars film. And what happened, of course, was that when uh, Star Wars became an enormous success, George no longer had to made it, make a sequel or sequels mm. on a low budget to do whatever he wanted. And we got The Empire Strikes Back, which I thought was a, a marvelous film. Did you guys ever talk about, because I know you wrote um, uh, Approaching Storm. Did you guys ever talk about the prequels? No, never talked about the prequels. After the novelization came out and after Splinter came out and after both of them sold millions of copies and Star Wars fandom became a developing thing, Del Rey, which had the rights to do Star Wars books, uh, would periodically ask me if I wanted to do an original Star Wars novel. Mm. Of course, I was familiar with Brian Daly's books and others, and I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do a book about Chewbacca's third cousin's uncle. Uh, <laughs> I just, I just didn't want to do it. It wasn't even that. I couldn't get up. I couldn't get my creative juices flowing to do something like that. Yeah. It just didn't interest me. Yeah. I had my own original work to do. I had other, other film franchises that I was involved with. And then eventually Del Rey came down. And Julian Del Rey was a real powerhouse of an editor. She would be very persuasive. And she said, well, we have another project, we, Star Wars project we think might interest you. And I kind of went, rolled my eyes and said, how do I diplomatically decline? And she said, we'd like you to write one of two proposed sequel books that fits between episode one and two and actually fits in that narrative. In other words, it's not somebody off on a spice room somewhere on the other side of the Star Wars galaxy. And I thought that could be really interesting. The other thing was it involved a female Jedi which I had Luminara and Duli, uh, and also her female Padawan, uh, Barris Ophi. And I thought, this is something that nobody's done yet. It's a, something that's always yeah. interested me about Star Wars. And I could explore, I would have interesting things to explore here if they'll let me do it. So I said, yes, and that's the book that became The Approaching Storm. And I also got to deal with young Anakin I enjoyed writing that book. I was largely left alone to write what I wanted to. However, there was a story conference up at the Skywalker Ranch where it was no longer myself and the director and the producer and Charlie Lippincott. It was a panel of people. And it, it was at about this point where they started going over every little tiny thing to make sure it accorded mm. with a developing Star Wars universe chronology and uh, encyclopedia. So it was not nearly as enjoyable as writing the first two books, but it was okay, it wasn't terrible. And I did get to write basically the book I wanted to write. And, and to that point about this kind of relationship between the extended universe back then and the sort of the core canon films, 
Were there a lot of guidelines that you would be given? Were there a lot of like uh, boundaries set up for you in these kind of uh, conversations with these, with these groups? Not so much, no. It was essentially, I would propose in the case of approaching storm, I proposed my idea, they, they okayed the idea and I went and wrote it. And then we had the conference where it got picked at. And I couldn't, I honestly couldn't go back and tell you um, what was specifically requested to be removed and what they wished to add, but it was nothing I couldn't accommodate. I, I can work with other people on yeah. books and films. Uh, I prefer as a writer to work alone, but that's not the way the motion picture business works. Uh, but it was nothing major. It was just additional work. And so I did it. What when you were writing the original Star Wars uh, novel or ghost writing as is famously referred to, um, at this point, did you already know or did George already know that um, that Anakin was Darth Vader uh, and Luke's father? Because there's always a lot of conversation that George didn't actually know that decision until they were basically in production on Empire Strikes Back. Um, but as you're writing the novel and hearing about Obi-Wan talking about, you know, uh, Luke's father and all of this stuff, did you already know this amazing dynamic that would become what's my favorite character in, in all of pretty much history, that the Anakin-Darth Vader connection? Did you already, did you guys already discuss that? Didn't have a clue, it was never mentioned. <laughs> it's never, so you can draw your own conclusions as fans have been doing for a very long time. What I always wanted to see was, because you do have that line from Obi-Wan about uh, Luke's father. I always wanted to see Darth Vader as Luke's evil older brother, who actually did kill their father, but has been covering it up all along and pretends to be Luke's father. And that would make Darth Vader even more of a bad guy. Of course, then you can't redeem Darth Vader at the end by having him on his deathbed saying, I'm sorry, I killed 12 billion people. Please forgive me. <laughs> Including just, some younglings and yeah. Yeah, couldn't couldn't do that. But that's how I that's the course I wanted to see Darth Vader go. But it's not my universe. Yeah. It, it is, it was George's universe. And with George's characters and George's invention. And that's the way it should go. And I didn't feel it was my place as simply the writer of the book adaptation to make proposals about future films other than anything I'd already done that existed in Splinter, but that's what I've done. But no, to answer your question, there was no clue, there was no indication. Just like there was no indication at that time that Luke and Leia were brother and sister. Yeah. That was also, I'm sure that was, because we have evidence of it, a decision that was made while Empire was being developed and made. And so, with talking about Anakin's redemption, Vader's redemption, you know, after killing 12 trillion people or whatever it was, um, Concluding Return of the Jedi, did George ever talk with you or did you have any insight on what his sequels would have been like? I had no idea. I was never asked. Hmm. I'm not pushy enough. Yeah. Uh, I can be actually more pushy as a fan than as a writer. Again, not my universe. I would have been delighted to contribute. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't there. And again, I don't move in those circles. I live in central uh, central Arizona. Yeah. I go to parties. I'm not nice to people I don't have to be nice to. 
whatever you want to make of that, you know, I will interject myself if the situation allows, but to sit around writing letters saying, please, can I work on Return of the Jedi, or please, can I work on this or work on that? I just don't do that. People know where I am. Yeah. If they want my input or any thoughts from me, I'm happy to provide them. Yeah. And Theory, you had a really interesting point when we, you and I were riffing yesterday about Splinter of the Mind's Eye with, with the crystal. The crystal? Ask him a little bit about yeah, that? Uh, I'd love to learn more about the crystal that, that basically amplifies your power, you know, tenfold and allowed Vader to shoot force lightning. and Because um, that's something that constantly we're told that Vader can't do because of his cybernetics and the way Sidious built his suit and this and that. So was that something that you talked about uh, with George? Uh, was that something he ever touched on? Um, or was that just something that you wanted to see and you created? Uh, yeah, that was something I wanted to see. And I spelled it the way I did mm. because I didn't want there to be any confusion with the Kyber Pass in Afghanistan. Okay. Which mm. spelled K-Y-B-E-R. And I thought, well, you can call it the Kyber Crystal to change the spelling. Uh, I thought it would be interesting if there was a device, a gimmick, which could magnify force powers. That allowed me to bring in the character of Hala, who is, you could call her almost a progenitor in some ways of Maz Kanata. Mm. I don't know how these things filter through, but you know, they do sometimes. And that doesn't bother me. Uh, it's all part of, it's all part, part of the universe. But I just thought it would be fun to have a device or something like that in there. I think it's kind of fun the way they develop the use of the crystal in lightsabers. Uh, if you're going to have a silly weapon, you might as well have a silly crystal. In it. Yeah. I'm sorry if I'm spitting in somebody's holy water here, but that's <laughs> <Not> mine. <laughs> but it's okay. But it's really? Okay. You always get a straight answer from me, a straight opinion. I love that. Yeah, I, I like that. that. There's no dancing. Every once in a while when I'm writing a book, I'll have a particularly a film novelization. I'll have a bad attack of what the hell. And I'll just throw something in there just for fun. Uh, you wouldn't believe, or maybe you would believe, how many queries I get about the Why a Duck reference in Star Wars in the book. Hmm. Well, by the same token, there's an idol in Splinter the Mind's Eye, which might slightly resemble a character from somebody else's universe. Um, and fans pick up on it, fans of both. Um, I'm referring, of course, to our old friend Cthulhu. Uh, fans pick up on that, but why shouldn't he exist in the Star Wars universe as well as, I mean, they're going, it's universe-spanning characters anyway, Lovecraftian characters. So I threw that in there and, and nobody picked up on it um, related to the film or the publisher or anything else, but fans of both Lovecraft and Star Wars recognize it immediately. Fun things like that I like to throw in there for fans to discover. It just can't be too blatant because then uh, sour-looking people in the accounting department come and, and give you this. Ah. You, know, you can't. Why are you doing this? You can't do this. This won't make us money. No, I have to explain that writing has to be fun for the writer too. Yeah. Mm. So, so let me let let's 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 pass um, some of the kind of beginning stuff and get a little deeper into a little bit of the darker stuff. At least from my perspective as a fan, um, the story that I've always heard is that Michael Arndt and George Lucas developed a screenplay for episode seven. Um, and that screenplay was then taken and changed quite a bit uh, by Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams and others. And we get what we got with The Force Awakens. 
And I'm fascinated because you're in a position, having written the novelization of The Force Awakens, um, just to ask you bluntly, did you ever read the unadulterated version of Michael Arndt's script for episode seven? No, I never saw it. Why would, why would the studio send me uh, reference materials that don't reference what I'm actually doing? There was no reason for me to see it. I would love to have seen it. I love seeing stuff like that. Yeah. Just like William Gibson's script for Alien. Uh, excuse me, Alien 3. But no, I, I never saw that. I worked only from the material I was given. Uh, the screenplay I was given, plus some visuals, which is what I always worked on. And that's all I had. I thought the script was very good. I thought there were some interesting things in there. Uh, which I tried to develop, uh, some other things I tried to change. Mm -hmm. uh, little things that I thought would make it read more like science fiction rather than science fantasy. I'm, I'm always doing that with Star Wars, even though I know it's science fantasy. I can't help myself. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things they made me take out, I didn't have to go to a story conference. This was all done uh, via email. And uh, some things I don't, I, I couldn't understand why they would want me to take them out. I thought they were good and I thought they added to the story. The main thing they left in, which I was sure they would take out, was my fixing the Starkiller weapon, which was, apologies to the original writers, really silly. It was. Um, I mean, if you... Not to go on and on about that, although it's a particular thing of mine, obviously. Oh, no, let's go on. Please about do it, go I, on. I, no, we're, yeah, yeah. we, yeah. Uh, we, I can't, the physics on that are, are a disaster. Look, let me, let me just let, yeah, let me just, we, we both share the same sentiment that we're very confused by the, um, the sequels in general. We don't understand, uh, how it strayed so far from George's vision. And frankly, as fans, we're a bit insulted as to how they would present us this kind of a storyline that was so, fragmented and wasn't linear in any sort of way um and then you know hearing the actors talk about how they didn't even know uh what their lineage was or this and that which takes me to our next please go ahead no yeah. no first i'll address your your comment first when I'll when go back to Okay, yeah, when you were writing, uh, two questions, I guess, basically. When you were writing for Ray, did they tell you who her lineage was at all? Because she said, Daisy Ridley was saying something about Obi-Wan, and then she said it's Palpatine, and then... No idea, and I don't think they had an idea either. They might have had some thoughts, bearing in mind that there would be further films, but if so, none of that was ever communicated to me. So I had to invent a background for her, in it's insofar huh. as I could. Uh, and no, I didn't make Ray a droid. I'll explain that too if you want. <laughs> what was the background that you gave her in your mind when you were writing? She'd been abandoned on the planet. She obviously had some force powers. I didn't think she was connected at that point hmm. to the Skywalkers in any way, which I thought made her a more interesting character. Right. If we're going to do a family drama, we do the crown. And that's not what I ever thought Star Wars was. So I had to develop the background for her uh, and also for how she accumulated the ability to do these amazing things in seemingly a blink of an eye, all of which I tried to explain in the book as close as I could in ways that I thought they would let me leave in. Uh, to your previous comment, uh, the reason a lot of these things happen, and this is just my personal opinion, is because people who try to go into the film business 
know they can't set the lights, they know they can't operate the camera, they know they can't do the special effects or sew the costumes or do the editing, but everybody thinks they can write. Mm. And so that's why we get some of the things, not just with Star Wars, obviously, but in many films, some of the things we do that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And if you throw science into the mix, you get real problems. And that's why we always have to refer to Star Wars as science fantasy and not science fiction. Yeah, so, so just going, to go back to, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, finish that. Going back to the Starkiller weapon, if you have something that could draw down pieces of a star, you obviously have more power available to yourself than you need to draw down stuff from a star. And if you could do that, it would immediately, the heat would blow all the air off the planet and everybody and everything would die instantly and your film would come to a sudden stop. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I set myself the task for that one little piece of science in The Force Awakens to research possible ways, theoretically, using real physics and real astrophysics to blow up a planet. And I came up with something that involves terms, as physicists like to use, that sound really silly, but are actual real physics. Uh, and put them all in there and... I, what my goal with that was to write something over a couple of pages that could be presented to somebody like uh, uh, Neil Tyson, and he would laugh at it. And I thought, sure, they would take that out. And they left it in. Right, surprisingly. So, so I got my, well, there are probably a dozen people on the planet who actually understand the details of what I was writing about. I'm not one of them, but I can fake stuff pretty good after all these years. Yeah. And Figured nobody would challenge, I was hoping nobody would challenge it because they wouldn't admit to an inability to understand what I was saying. I think that maybe is what happened. To to stay on Starkiller base or that scene, there's like probably the most, in my opinion, in theory, please jump in here, mm. the most kind of discussed moment in the novels, at least in my little circles of friends, is always that moment when um, Ray hears the voice um right you know in her head um so could you expand a little bit about that about what you were thinking um with 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 that scene or where that kind of came from sure it was in the script so i adapted it to the book like everything else that was in the script i didn't know exactly where the voice it wasn't specified in the script where the voice came from uh the only person the only character in the story that i could think of two characters uh, no, the only character in the story I could think of who would possibly say something like that or be related to a dream sequence like that would be Kylo Ren. And that's the way I wrote it. And I didn't go any further with that. I didn't say specifically, if I recall the book correctly, that Kylo Ren is doing that. But there's obviously a connection now between the two of them. Uh, again, I didn't think of Rey as a Skywalker. I thought of her as a so much more interesting to me if you introduce somebody who is not part of a lineage from the previous six films mm -hmm. who has these abilities maybe a little different abilities that to me was much more interesting but it's not the way it played out but as far as that particular sequence goes and speaking from the standpoint of a writer the only reason i could see for that to be included was to throw some kind of a macguffin in there just something out of the blue that right. might intrigue viewers if they saw it on screen and subsequently read it in the book. If I'd been writing it, that scene wouldn't have been in there. 
because once you put something like that in there, you have to explain what it's doing there. It has to have a purpose that is followed up on, and it's me as a writer, it was just confusing. But it, it certainly gave rise to a lot of fun speculation. I always, I always thought when she was, you know, just about to strike down Kylo when he was already on the ground, that voice that she hears that says, do it, uh, was Snoke or Palpatine. Uh, the nice thing about that was it could have been either of those or it could have been anybody. Okay. And I just thought of when I was writing it, I just thought this is the dark side speaking to her. Cool. Okay. I, I didn't think of it as a particular person, a particular individual. I just thought that's the dark side speaking to her. That is the element of the dark side that is in her. And if she has that in her, then that makes her a much more ambivalent character morally and a much more interesting character. So there was no specific person in mind when I was writing that, just the dark side speaking. <laughs> I was making theories, trying to figure it out. I'm like, who could it be? It's Snoke. Did they tell you who Snoke was? No. Yeah. Yeah, what about Snoke? Like, like in terms of, did you ask, so where, where, who is this guy? Where did he come from? The What's eye roll. Thing? Like, yeah, he was such a cool character. Yeah. And then the just... Of course. Nothing. Of course I did. And when I wrote my my fun treatment for fun for fans yeah. or proposed episode eight i dealt with snoke he was the emperor at the time there was no palpatine palpatine was gone yeah. palpatine was deaded and i wish he'd stayed deaded yeah. nobody asks <laughs> you're me. here so we have this new emperor who we find out uh, is essentially unkillable until the end of the treatment that i did because he has made clones of himself. I don't like clones. I don't like the idea of clones. I don't like the idea of, I think, I think it's a cop-out story-wise because then real people don't get killed. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the rationale for it. We're just killing the same person over and over again. Um, but if Snoke has clones, I thought that would be an interesting way of preserving it. There's no Palpatine in my treatment because I, as far as I was concerned, Palpatine died. You keep bringing these old characters back. There has to be a real solid rationalization for it. And I, I never saw it. Yeah. Again, this is just me speaking. It's not my universe. But as speaking as a writer who's worked in this universe, I think it's much more interesting if you have new characters, like Maz Kanata, as a for instance, yeah. or Snoke. Yeah. I didn't, so, so name, I didn't like the name Snoke, but that's a minor quibble. So, so we talked about pre- uh, Disney that it was George's vision and, and George was driving the vision when you were working on force awakens after the Disney acquisition, who did you feel was driving the vision? Now there's a loaded question. Yes, that's a, that's, that's a Mark question, right? That's a good question. Um, who did I feel was driving the vision? I didn't think anybody was driving the vision. I think it was a, I think it was a, a vision of group think. Just knowing how things work. I don't know this. Uh, maybe there was a Disney version of Hari Seldon sitting back there guiding everything secretly. But I think there was a lot of contributions from a lot of different places. Um, uh, and in the end, it's the writer and director who take ultimate responsibility for what you see. But I think there was a lot of input from sources who weren't as interested in writing as they were in preserving 
the fiscal legacy of Star Wars, which if I had paid several billion dollars for something and wanted my money back, I would consider a valid reason for having input. Uh, rightly or wrongly from a creative standpoint. Again, I don't know that this was the case. Uh, maybe Rian Johnson did everything and it was all his vision and nobody else had any input. But uh, knowing what I know about the way the motion picture business works, especially large films done today, I suspect that was not the case. I, I would think there would have been a lot of story conferences that I was not privy to, where a lot of people had input, some of which was probably adopted, some of which was not. Uh, but in the end, it's the responsibility of the writer-director. It's your name on the screen or your name on the book, which is why I care about these things. Uh, I've been criticized for things over the years, good criticism, bad criticism, but ultimately it's my name on the book. And that's why I'm so passionate about what goes into it. It would be very easy to stand back and say, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're right about that criticism there. That's a mistake or that's a bad piece of writing. Uh, but it's not my fault because it was in the screenplay or because it was in the movie. Can't do that. So I fight for certain things. But needless to say that there was limited to zero input from George Lucas in the Force Awakens sequel. I certainly wouldn't hear from George. I would have liked to have heard from George, even if he didn't have formal input into it, into the screenplay and the finished product, just to have heard from George. Maybe it's a good thing I didn't. Because if I had heard from George and he'd said, well, this is actually the way I saw it 20 years ago. Can you sneak, can you put this in the book? I would have done my utmost to put it in the book and I would put it in the manuscript and then somebody likely would have said, wait a minute, this isn't part of, this isn't in screenplay. This isn't part of our idea. This isn't the storyline we want. Uh, and then I would have said, well, I talked to George this, this is his idea, and that would have put me in a very awkward place. And I, you know, I don't mind being in awkward places, but when there's that much money involved and that much ego involved on all sides, I really try to stay away from it. I'm just this humble little writer sitting here in central Arizona trying to deliver the best story to people who plunk down their 20 bucks for a book that I possibly can one reason well, I said. lived in central Arizona and we moved out of Los Angeles, not just because my wife said, sure you want to live here to be near these people. Sometimes distance is, is very important. Um, there used to be uh, in the old heyday of the, of the studios when they controlled everything, there would be a writer's building and all the writers working on films had to come in and report and clock in and show that they were working on whatever project it was. And the studios would hire people in the early days of sound who were considered to be really good writers because the studio heads knew nothing about writing. Mm -hmm. They knew movies, but they didn't know about writing. And one of the ones they hired was William Faulkner. Mm. And Faulkner finally said one day to whoever was supervising that, that part of the building, I can't really work here. Can I go work from home? And then I'll turn my stuff in. And the guy thought and he said, sure. And time went by and finally, I think if I'm remembering the story correctly, a senior supervisor came in and said, where's Faulkner? And the other guy said, well, he's working from home. Faulkner had gone back to Mississippi. Didn't want any part of Los Angeles or, or 
Yeah. That was the only way he could work. So I'm happy working where I work. They say that Barton Fink is actually loosely based on that anecdote. That's that, right. That, that you're describing. Um, this is fascinating to me. Um, the, uh, theory, I know you had a few uh, like other questions when we were riffing uh, yesterday. Um, I could keep. Force away. Yeah, I could yeah, keep yeah, going go, forever. Go, but no, go yeah, for yeah, it, man. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go. You go. Um. Well, my question is, you know. Uh, what did you think? What do you what do you think of the sequel trilogy in general? Do you think um, do you like it? Do you think it is straying from what George had intended? From your opinion, having been there from the very beginning, um, what would you like to see going forwards? Just as a fan, just as a fan, yeah, a fan and a writer, I suppose. Off, off contract, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I'm likely to be hired to work on the next film, so I, I think we're pretty safe here. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, never say never. I, I mean, yeah, talent, who knows? talent is talent. I don't want talent you to say something talent. that'll, you know, who knows? And things change rapidly in the motion picture business, but let's proceed on that basis. Uh, I thought episode seven was pretty good. I thought JJ, you know, doing sequels is really hard. And rebooting a franchise is even harder. And I thought he did a really good job. I thought he set up a lot of interesting things. We'll forget about the science. Uh, I did write about the science in the, uh, the Force Awakens, by the way. Long four-page letter, gave it to a representative, supposed representative. As far as I know, I never got to it. It may have, may have been ignored, don't know. Um, I'm always making these unsolicited suggestions. Uh, so I thought episode seven was pretty good. That's one reason I enjoyed writing the book, even though there were things they asked me to take out, but I expected that, I anticipated that. And I thought it set up a lot of interesting storylines for episode eight, proposed episode eight. I thought episode eight was terrible. I've said this many times in print, yeah. I think, um, not to go on and on about it because people have ever since the film. We've done that enough, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't need to do it again, but yes, yeah, we agree. I thought it was. I thought it was a bad. I thought it was a terrible Star Wars movie, and I thought it was just a bad movie. Period. If you had never seen any previous Star Wars films, Star Wars films, and knew nothing about Star Wars, I still thought it was a bad movie. And there's no need to go on and on and on about why, mm -hmm. because that's done uh, ad infinitum. I thought episode seven tried, episode seven, excuse me. I thought episode nine tried to fix and retcon as much as they could of episode eight. But when you blow up a house, uh, rebuilding it out of only the material that's left from the initial explosion is really hard. <laughs> I mean, pieces don't fit well together. Very well said. Pieces don't fit together. Uh, a lot of the original construction material is irreparably damaged. Uh, I could not get that, that image of little puppet, you know, little CGI Yoda dancing around like a refuge from the Muppets, you know, while the tree burns and all the previous knowledge is destroyed. You can reset yeah. things. You can reboot things. But if you're just going to piss on everything that goes before, including the hopes and desires of people who've grown up with the Star Wars films for their whole lives, never mind older fans, you're going to have a really tough time resetting. I am personally glad and hope that the Skywalker saga, Skywalker saga is done with. I think the Mandalorian is very nice. I think that's the direction Disney needs to go. The Star Wars universe is broad enough 
that they can go all kinds of different directions, especially since it's science fantasy and science fiction, without going back and trying to fix and rehash what is a done deal. People have talked about, well, let's just remake episodes eight and nine, seven, two, if you want to, and forget about the others. You can't forget about the others. They're there, they exist. They're not going away any more than the pyramids are going away. We all have to live with that fact. But there's lots of fascinating directions that Star Wars can go. Uh, the Mandalorian being an excellent example. I don't think they should go back and try to do, my opinion again, Old Republic stuff or stories that exist in the timeline of the first nine films but are outside it. I think they're much better off going into the future. Prequels are really hard to do because everything has to accord with something that already exists. Much rather see them do more stuff like The Mandalorian, which people are obviously having a good time with and enjoying. I love it. Yeah, go even further away from the original nine films. Use the background, use the universe, use the technology, develop new things. And lo and behold, the Star Wars universe will continue in a way that fans enjoy. And to be continue, continue to argue about episodes one through three and episodes seven through nine till the end of time. Uh, but that's fine. That can be a to that, to that point, what what are your overall impressions in, from a similar perspective about the prequels or episodes one through three? Um, I liked episode three a lot. I thought episodes one and two suffered from the thing that all prequels suffer from. We know what's going to happen. Eventually, we know what's going to happen to the storyline, to the major characters. It makes it extremely difficult. Uh, plus, it makes it extremely difficult to engage people who in the back of their minds are thinking, well, I know what's going to happen to this character. You lose a lot of your tension. You lose a lot of your surprise. You lose a lot of your tools that you have as a writer to surprise and engage readers or viewers. I don't like prequels. I've done them myself on request, but uh, they're hard and I don't, I'd much rather do sequels than prequels or spin off in a different direction. If you go off in a different direction, that doesn't mean that you can't pull in things from your predecessor's stories. Yeah. That's fun. You know, wait a minute. I, I saw so-and-so was wearing that gown in episode two, why is this character wearing it? It's exactly the, and fans love that sort of thing. I love that sort of thing. Yeah. But you don't have to develop a whole film or a whole book series around it. Just my time. Um, I agree. Yeah, look, look, that's fair. Um, I I would counter a little bit and say that the, that the entire format of the tragedy, um, which was obviously extremely popular in the times of Shakespeare and in the Greek times is, is you know sooner or later that the hubris will get the hero uh, into a demise. So you're kind of always waiting for that to happen. Um, and that's why, um, you know, for me, the first three are really the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. Um, you know, obviously there's all this political stuff that's on top of it as well that I find very interesting. But, you know, going with Anakin and, you know, never wanting the end to come because you know it's coming to me is actually a very powerful thing but i agree with you that number three i mean number three is my favorite star wars movie out, out of all of them 
um, and one and two I've grown to love because they lead to three. Um, and also because three is the last George Lucas Star Wars movie we're ever going to get, you know? So over the years, my rose-colored glasses have become more and more and more opaque, and I just see nothing but beauty. But I totally get your point, you know? Um, you know, there was things in three that I wish could have happened that didn't happen that maybe will happen now because of the television shows or whatnot. Um, but, but look, it's a fair point, you know? And I wanted to get your perspective uh, because sometimes people say, oh, you're always trashing the sequels. I think it's always important to give fair perspective to all of it. You know, and as Star Wars fans, there's a lot of prequel lists like me. And, you know, we got to check ourselves, too, at the door. Fair enough. Well, episode two had one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Wars was when Anakin uh, said goodbye to Padme and raced off to save his mother. We got the first glimpse right. of the dark side, which in the novel was... I wish they had incorporated so many pieces from the novel into the movie because you got to see Anakin. Did you ever read the episode two novel, Alan? No. Yeah. Well, essentially, you just get a whole bunch of force powers that Anakin uses on these Tusken Raiders, and he's just the dark side exemplified. It doesn't just cut Toyota and Qui-Gon screaming. You know, um, Anakin's using force speed. He's crushing the Tuscans with boulders. He's just going absolutely insane like a vampire in the night. I was never, I was never a big fan of the Force. Really? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I love the idea of light and dark and all that. Right. As a writer, it lets you explore light and dark. Sure. But um, you reach a point uh, where people become so powerful that it's hard to be sympathetic to. Mm. And every, if everybody becomes Superman, then you end up with uh, Justice League and Marvel movies. Right. They're not human anymore. It's not humanized anymore. I thought Ray lost a lot of her humanness at the end of episode eight. Because if you can just throw rocks and boulders and spaceships around, it's just, um, it's hard to identify with characters like that. Yeah. It's hard to identify with, uh, with any character who becomes a superhero and the fewer weaknesses they have, the harder it is to sympathize with them. Yeah. And it's yeah. tough for me you know, as a writer to see where to go with something like with an element, a story element like that. It's like, well, here we have the, this big confrontation. You just described some. And uh, suddenly this character puts their hand up and everybody flies off into space. Okay. Well, you know, where does that go as a story? How do you develop the humanness of that character? My sympathy at that point, if you do something like that, is with all the dead people flying off into space. It's something that these movies do way too often, and I know why they do it, because it's a comic book kind of thing. But when you're killing dozens and hundreds and thousands of people, you know, again, this goes back to the usefulness in this case of clones. It's like, presumably, these people have families, they have kids, they have hopes, they have dreams. I did, it was a, a one thing when I was criticizing in a column I wrote criticizing episode uh, eight at the end where you have the Imperial guards all being dispatched by Ray and Kylo fighting together, which is probably the best action scene in the entire film actually. I actually have two of the guards staying back and one of the guards, I forget what names I gave him, Bill and Ted or something like that, <laughs> saying, wait a minute, to his buddy, because they 
or presumably all Malaysians. And so what are we doing here? And the buddy says, well, they, they just killed the emperor. We have to. And the guy said, well, wait a minute. They just killed the emperor. These two must be pretty powerful. And the emperor is dead and we work for him. Why, why are we going to go get ourselves killed? Mm. You know, I've got a vacation planned. Mm. Right. Time yeah. off. You know, and these two are now obviously more powerful than the emperor was. Referring to Snoke at this point. Yeah. Says, why don't we see if we can go work for them? Right, right. It's like that's that the common being, sense approach. If that human beings dying all the time, and they're still human beings, uh, it's kind of like you know, there's no logic or reason to it. It's just it just serves the plot. Like an alien free. The, the who are these prisoners on this prison planet? To switch right minute here. Why are they here? What did they do to? get sent to this horrible, horrible place. But in the movie, they're just alien chow. You know, basically, have, they have no motivations. I'm so, as a writer, this concerns me. <laughs> yeah. I know in a two-hour movie, you don't have time to explore everybody's backstory. But there at least should be some logic and reason to how these things happen. Or if people die, there should be consequences. Well, I, I think my favorite part of this of talking with you today was when you uh, enlightened us that everyone thinks that they're a writer, but they're not. Right? <laughs> no, they're not. I, I, I fancy myself a writer too, and sometimes I, I've done better than others. See, everyone's a writer. I can't paint worth a damn, so we're just you know I'm not taking anybody's cover art job away from me. Right. Um. You know that that story. It's probably should have belonged at the beginning of the interview, but it's it's something that I actually learned back at NYU, and my professor probably told it in a strange way, but he credits the genius of Star Wars's initial explosion to this incredibly uh, fascinating kind of grassroots marketing effort around uh, Comic-Con a year before the movie came out, where George... Uh, commissioned Ralph McQuarrie, I believe, to do the cover art for the novelization. And Ralph McQuarrie already had a pretty good name back then. And you had done the ghost writing and uh, he was, you know, the writer of record on the novel. And because it was a Ralph McQuarrie cover art, there was a huge line of people waiting to get, because uh, Ralph McQuarrie was there at Comic-Con in the first one, to get his signature on this novelization of this book that nobody knew anything about, but that this kind of grassroots movement that started at Comic-Con, I believe in 76 or 75, it was like before the movie came out, was actually the reason why when the movie did come out, it already had this kind of built-in buzz. Um, and they used this story for us as like, you know, um, like, kind of alternative marketing ideas and and how to push your you know like your film um does this story r ring a bell at all or is this just complete fantasy that teachers tell students oh no i mean i don't know about the macquarie signing session personally but we have to give a lot of credit uh, to charlie lippincott whom i mentioned before for this so charlie's the one who developed uh, this uh, huge marketing campaign uh, got Star Wars into the newspaper as a comic strip, 
uh, was responsible for arranging the toy licensing deals, which nobody wanted to do Star Wars toys. What's Star Wars? Uh, and in fact, Charlie uh, came to me when we were talking one time and said, we've got a 16 millimeter reel of small things, little bits and pieces from the movie. He knew I was going to a couple of conventions, science fiction conventions. And he said, would you take this and see if they'll show it? Which I did. They made me give the reel back, but uh, so I did that. So all of this promotional stuff was, uh, and, and the book deal too with uh, Del Rey books. Mm. To get the book out before six months before the movie came out. That's why the book was important mm. to, to the film. Um, so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, any story you hear about uh, promotion, pre-promotion for the film, probably eventually winds its way back to Charlie, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And Charlie saved everything. Charlie saved everything. He has boxes and boxes of stuff. Uh, the recordings I mentioned earlier of, of story sessions and other sessions. Will those ever be released? Uh, I don't those know. Private. I don't know. His widow has control of that. And But there's things like, you know, script pages and set directions. Oh, wow. Kind of tons and tons of stuff really belongs in a museum, uh, but it's only exists because he saved it. It's just like the Hollywood studios would reuse cells for cartoons because the acetate panels were worth more than the art that was on the panels. That's no longer true, of course, mm. uh, which is why the only studios that you find existing animation, animation cells from, from early animation generally is Disney because Disney did save and archive a lot of that stuff. Studios like Warner Brothers and MGM's animation and um, all of the others, they just wash the cells and reuse them. Nobody thinks that something you do now is going to be history. But eventually, everything that survives becomes history. Uh, so that's why people, people have learned this, and that's why they're starting to save things. So we have a lot of junk lying around that's not going to be important. But, uh, I'd love to see it someday. Yeah. Yeah, 2,000 years down the line, all those McDonald's cups. So, so we're, we're, we're pushing an hour already, and I, and I want to be sensitive to your time, and you've been so generous with it, and I thank you so much for that. We've had the audience uh, send in a few questions. I don't know if, Theory, you want to pick a few of the audience questions uh, to ask Alan? Most of them are, are comments. Um, just, you know, we have over 3,000 people here right now that saying how much they love you and they appreciate you and they thank you for your work and uh, all, all your fans over here and you know, everyone's saying much love. You know, uh, Mr. Foster, thank you for all your writings. You've entertained us over the years. Many of us give you our full support. Just things like that, nice messages. Um, I have another question uh, regarding the wills. I'm kind of... Yeah, let's do it. Let's kind of bring it full circle. Yeah, um... Well, you might not be able to answer, but in the Clone Wars, we get the Shaman of the Wills. We get, well, Qui-Gon Jinn spoke to the Shaman of the Wills, and he was able to transcend into the Force. Who taught Yoda, who taught Obi-Wan, so on and so forth, who taught Anakin. Uh, was that, do you know anything about the Clone Wars with the writing, or do you know if these wills were the actual wills from the original Star Wars? Or That's a question for the people who wrote that episode. Got it. Uh, They've flown anywhere are you? I can't possibly track everything that's going on. Uh, of course, yeah. With the universe because I wouldn't have time to do anything else. Yeah. 
but it's, it's a direction that you could go with that. I've already expressed my feelings about the wills, which way I think that would have been nice. They were pretty done. cool. I think that's where the whole a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away thing might come, is that they're observing that. And so maybe that's their... That was always my feeling about that. I do want to mention the book. Yes, please. I, oh, yeah, of course, of course. Geez. I have a book coming out from Centipede Press, hopefully next month, called The Directorship of Shakti, which details my entire history, insofar as I can recall it, in doing film and TV adaptations into book form. Uh, you can write the publisher, again, that's Centipede Press. And a lot of questions that people have asked over the years get answered. A lot of questions they haven't asked get answered. And people who are curious about the process of writing film novelizations or just about what it was like to work on everything from, from Aliens to the Chronicles of Riddick to Clash of the Titans to Black Hole and, of course, Star Wars, um, might, might enjoy reading the book. It's not a terribly long book. It doesn't have a 200-page appendix. But uh, I'm going to pick it up. There's a lot of stuff in there that I've never talked about before, which occurred to me as I was writing the book. And it all starts with the first book adaptation I did, which is an adaptation of a terrible Italian film called Luana from 1973. <laughs> uh, and that's how I got started doing this. Is there any little sneak peek from the book that you want to share with us? A little tease? Other than what I've already said? Yeah. No, uh, I mean, there are things in there like uh, why I didn't write Alien Resurrection, the book version, mm -hmm. after having written the previous three film adaptations. Uh, why Vice President from Universal Studios called me and tried to ban me from having any contact with any, anyone related to the film, The Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> While I was working on the book, um, why Alien 3 was such a bad experience, uh, what can really go wrong when you're writing a novelization, not destroy you as a writer, but to depress you. Mm. And uh, things like Ray Harryhausen asking why he couldn't do a Lovecraft film, and meeting H.R. Giger in a hallway outside a showing of a film at the, the LA Book uh, and ABA conference and you know, a lot of little things like that that I think people would enjoy. And of course, I'm ridiculously straightforward as I usually am. And uh, why why nobody's going to ask me to write the next Star Wars film? I, I don't <laughs> trash I don't trash people. I don't do that. Uh, people are just people. But when something is wrong with the story, or when something is wrong with the film, I will always speak up. Uh, when I was doing the novelization of the black hole afterwards, I sent, uh, I prepared a list of 75 things that I thought could be fixed or improved in post-production cheaply. And the story of what happened to that is in the book. So there, there's a lot, there's some fun stuff in there that I think people will enjoy reading. Um, we'll each have one last question. My, my final question for you, because I want to actually take this to heart. And I ask this to every writer that I meet, do you, what, what's your mental discipline, your approach when you start getting hit with a little bit of that writer's block? Or does that never happen to you like, like Hemingway? Never had writer's block, I'm sorry. Right, right, well, that's what Hemingway said too. Never had writer's block. I've had, I've had situations where I work more slowly than other times. 
but uh, I've never had writer's block. I, I have a little screen like this up in front of my face, imaginary screen, and all I do is describe what I'm seeing. Oh, that's awesome. I've been called a visual writer. That probably comes from learning how to read from comic books. And uh, that's what I do. I just go to wherever the scene is and describe what I'm seeing. It's beautiful. Thank you for that. I don't have any further questions for you. You've been more than generous with your time. So we thank you for your time and for educating us and talking with us. And uh, chat, thanks so much for being here.